The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello there, I'm Austin Bristow and you're listening to On The List. For episode 29 on Tuesday, October 26th, I'm joined by pitcherless writer Jai Correa. Jai, thanks for joining me. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now, for those of you who are new to the show, I'm joined by a writer from the pitcherless staff, and we like to talk baseball, discuss what they've been working on recently, and we do a mailbag at the end of the episode where we answer your questions. You can send those questions directly to me on Twitter. I am at Bristowski, or better yet, you can hop into our PL Plus Discord server where I ask for questions every week. Now, Jai, where can the people find you on Twitter? Do not have a Twitter. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I you know what? A little envious. <laughs> I've been thinking about getting one. I had one several years ago. Well actually it's quite a long time ago. It might have been six, seven years ago. Uh wasted a lot of time kind of scrolling through or whatever. So in an attempt to be more productive, kind of just dropped it. And uh the pro- productivity is not quite you know increased at all but <laughs> <laughs> now i'm too lazy to create an account so yeah i i recently uh turned off notifications for twitter on my phone which i think has made my life a slight bit better just because i would doom scroll and read about all the bad things that are happening in the world on Twitter whenever I get like a notification of like, oh, here's a funny man that says something funny. And then I would like, you know, ha ha, and then scroll for a while and, and get sad. So I guess I'm not doing that as often anymore. Yeah, no, that's good for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, the man without a twitter account mystery man already so let's start off with a little uh kind of intro question wide open here just tell us a bit about yourself yeah so um i was born in boston and um well my dad was in school and become a red Sox fan and but i was two when i moved to palo alto in california so quite a ways away wasn't really you know, used to the cold or whatever when I went back to college at UMass. But um, I guess growing up in Palo Alto, you know the legend, uh, Jock Peterson. Absolutely. So, you know, and 
just Jock and Devontae Adams, and there's Jeremy Lin before that. So basically the only three athletes that anyone ever talks about. I mean, to be fair, <laughs> those are three pretty good ones. Yeah. No, Adams, like, is phenomenal. And Jock, you know, every postseason, you know, just goes off, which oh, is yeah. I'm currently rocking watch. some uh, $4 pearl necklace from Walmart that I bought in preparation for tonight's game. It's awesome. It's a great look. You should keep it going for a while. I, I mean, I, I'm going to be wearing them all week for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess a little more about myself. Um, so I grew up, you know, loving cricket. Um, I'm Indian, and so kind of was bound to happen. It's a nation of like over one billion people, and the only thing they watch is cricket. So Sounds there's lovely. that. Yeah. Um, so that's what I started playing first and watching. And baseball came to me in second grade. It's more of a way to just, for my parents, you know, they told me kind of you need to go out a little more mingle, whatever, just as like kind of get around, you know, be active. And um, my dad was a Red Sox fan, so I'd sit down with him and watch some games. Uh, a lot of the playoff games, especially like those Red Sox, Yankees ones, like game four and game five, they're going in the 14th inning. Even on the West Coast, those are way past my bedtime, oh, so I don't, sure. <laughs> I don't remember watching those. Um, but I got hooked. And when I got signed up for baseball the following spring, they have like the teams, all the major league teams, but they do it kind of at the local level with the sponsor. And, uh, you know, I'd grown to hate the Yankees at that point. So when I, you know, found out that my team was going to be the Yankees, I threw this like massive oh, temper tantrum. No. I'm like, I'm not going to play. This is the worst. You know, how could I play for the enemy? My dad's <laughs> like, you got to calm down. It's not the real Yankees. So I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. And uh, yeah, it. I mean, I luckily he did do that because I cannot, you know, imagine my life without baseball and so you know you know since then the real first team that i actually got into like with the red sox was that 2007 team mm. particularly uh there's obviously ortiz that at that point he was a full-blown star um but the two i loved the most were kevin euclid the greek god of walks Absolutely. and hops now yeah, we got a hops. I really is, need is to go to. Is he making beer? Yeah, so um, he's got. So he's married to Tom Brady's sister, and then she. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so the Brady. This is family, all new information to me. Oh, so the Brady family grew up like in San Mateo's, which is pretty close to where I am. It's about I don't know, I think twenty thirty minutes away um, from Palo Alto, and uh, so. They moved out here once kind of Uke retired, and he's got a brewery. It's called Lomer Brewery, I think. Um, so it's close by. Really need to go. But so, I mean, he was a great baseball player too, not just the brewery stuff. But And my favorite pitcher was Josh Beckett at the time. He was phenomenal. I, all of, he had this nasty, like, two- seeing her that would go 
I was the Maddox like front door sinker, except it was going yeah. at like 96, 97, which is ridiculous. And then this insane curveball, which was phenomenal. So every time I'd get on a mound, I was doing his uh, wind up. Never really worked. I think I tried it <laughs> a couple times in one game, and I ended up just throwing it on the fly to the backstop. I was like, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, so that 2007 team, I mean, in particular, even when I was playing, you know, they'd always take the first pitch, they'd grind out at bats, and so that's something even now, like, you see it with Bogarts. It was very traditional Red Sox thing to really just grind out at bats and walks and take the first pitch, even though there were fastballs down the middle, which is something Cora kind of came along after 17 and said, hey, you need to swing up the first pitch, the easy fastballs. And it's a big part why they won the championship. Sure. Um, but yeah, uh, so that's the basis of my Red Sox fandom. Uh, now, uh, I guess outside of baseball, there's I love playing basketball. Pickup. I'm a fairly competitive person by nature. Good. good. So um, I love you know just scoring over everyone. Uh, I guess so. Pre-pandemic, I was like 40, 50 pounds heavier, believe it or not, <laughs> which is crazy. But Shoot, dang. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Got into long distance running uh, during the pandemic. If you told me five years ago I'd be running more than like a mile at any given point, I would have laughed. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah. But uh, back then, yeah, I was basically Shaq. I just like go and post people up, and just like bully people. Wait, how and tall are you? I am six one. Okay, okay. So you're about yeah. my height. <laughs> yeah. So like earlier this year, I thought like so I went to the doctor and they said, "Oh, you're six two. I'm like I grew an inch. It's super weird. <laughs> I'm like this pandemic is pretty nice. You lose a good amount of weight, you grow an inch. Like, what is everyone complaining about? <laughs> awesome. My uh, yeah. my high school or sorry, college roommate um, got really, really into distance running to the point where he ran. I, I want to. I think it was called an ultra marathon, something like fifty miles. Yeah, it, I've I've got a cousin terrifying. that did that. Yeah, I think yeah, she ran like sixty, seventy miles or something. I can't. After the max I've gotten to is 11, and that takes everything I got. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I legitimately can't imagine, like, myself attempting to walk, let alone jog, like, 30-plus miles in one sitting. It's – like, I, physically, I don't think my body would hold up to that kind of strain. Yeah, it, it took – so, like, for me, I started, like, a really small – this like, it was just once around the block, which is, like, half a mile. Then I went a mile. Then it, So that's how I, like, physically got to that point. But a lot of running is just, like – it's super, like, meticulous with your, uh, I guess, your technique. You need to have your arms in the right place. Your posture needs to be good, which for me, as you can tell, is just all over the place right now. <laughs> I hunch over, I got my legs crossed, it's just like a whole bunch of things. And so that 
and then also regulating your breathing and you have to like for me like i focus on a point just in the distance and mm. like it could it can get really boring because i don't listen to music while i'm running it's just straight up doing it so yeah it, it's something i i mean personally it really helps to just kind of cleaning the mind like they're really good i guess endorphins is the right word of just like you know making yourself kind of clear out all the negative energy i don't want to sound like Kyrie, but you know (laughs) (laughs) you know it it really cleans out all like the negative stuff absolutely for me i mean just the routine of it and everything like that is great for you as well so yeah i uh I probably should start uh, running, working out, something along those lines. Um, I'll get on that. <laughs> <laughs> Wait till after the World Series, though. You exactly. Gotta, like, no, my yeah. my evenings are a little uh, little booked this week. <laughs> yeah, tonight's game one. You know, uh, Morton and Fromber. Personally, the Braves, like to me. I think last year I wasn't really a full believer. Like even they got ahead three one, but it never felt like they were the real like sort of you know team that was going to beat the Dodgers and like yeah. go through. It always seemed like the Dodgers were well ahead, which is weird because if you're up three one, like you're right there, you're, yeah, you, you should be the hands on favorite. Like eighty ninety percent of the time, you should be getting through, but. I think with Morton there, you know, you've got a reliable, dependable guy. Low, you know, slow heartbeat. Been there, done that. And he's also freaking amazing, which is like just power stuff again. Like as I was talking about with Beckett, sinker, curve. He hasn't even been like proper playoff Chuck Nasty yet, but I, I could easily see him coming out with six, seven innings tonight of dominant baseball against his former team. Yeah, I, I mean, against the Dodgers, um, he had that start, game three. He walked like six guys. It just it did not – I think he walked the bases loaded in the first inning. And he only gave up a few runs. If you walk six guys against the Dodgers and you only give up two runs, that's like a major Houdini act. So major props uh, to Morton. Freed has looked phenomenal too. So they've got a real good one-two punch. Absolutely, yeah. I'm uh, Matzik at the end. My goodness, he looks phenomenal. He's been insane. If we can only get the kind of the rest of the bullpen on board with the where Matzik and Smith have been, it'd be. I'm I'm tentatively hopeful. My prediction is uh, Atlanta in six, but I think just like the Dodgers series, I think we're gonna have, have very good baseball the entire time. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm as a Red Sox fan, I'm used to seeing like Ryan Brazier and like high leverage spots. So someone like Matzik, I guess there's Whitlock who's been phenomenal, you know, this year, but generally you know he's saved till the very end yeah very particular spots so someone like matzik is fairly foreign to someone like me (laughs) it's it's so so nice to be able to know you can lean on that i mean when just what was a game uh six when uh luke jackson couldn't get a single out matzik comes in 
nobody out, uh, men on second and third, and gives up zero runs or hits. It was insane. He struck out Mookie on three fastballs, just blew him away. Just no hope. Absolutely wild. Uh, speaking of Whitlock, he, he's such an interesting player to me as we get on a nice uh, Boston tangent here. Do you think they're going to try to get him in the rotation next year? So here's the thing. So I think with Bloom, they had their um, exit interviews Monday. And, you know, Bloom was talking about having kind of six, seven, eight starters, you know, so that you can kind of keep the innings down but also you know it gears them up kind of for the postseason where you can piggyback yeah. guys i mean cora was so good with it this year for the most part um i think there were some instances where he i he left sail in for too long i think in uh game five he generally been really good about strictly sticking with two times through the lineup next guy in um, that would have been a nice situation for Hauk, who I expect to be in the rotation as sure, well. Of course. Um, but yeah, I think with Whitlock, um, his idol, funny enough, with, um, is Rick Porcello. I didn't see that one coming. Love me some but, Rick Porcello. <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, pounding the strike zone, you know, being efficient with your pitches, not maxing out is something that Whitlock has always strived for. Um, to be and so i think it'll be a fairly easy transition for him to go to the rotation um the red sox have tried this with relievers particularly daniel bard where you know it just did not end well but now he's back you know i'm with the rockies and doing phenomenal so that's that was a really heartwarming story. Phenomenal. It's a bit of a uh, stretch. I, I had Bard on my fantasy oh. team this year. Oh, okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe I just selectively, you know, took out the bad. Yeah, he he, he got a lot of saves. They were <laughs> they were kind of like oh. messy saves a lot of the time. Let's see. Uh, yeah, no, phenomenal. He had okay. Daniel Bard had a five twenty one oh, yeah, ERA so, this year. Okay. I definitely just like ignored the guy. <laughs> it's okay. He's not. He's not on the Red Sox anymore. You know. <laughs> I'll just say he was phenomenal. We'll leave it there. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> but but no, Whitlock's uh, got three pitches, doesn't he? Yeah. So fast. It's yeah. So he's got kind of a mix. I think it's just just a sinker. But I've kind of seen him like on the Soma do a like a four seamer. But I think it's mostly sinker. Um, and then he's, uh, that's kind of a power fastball. And then he's got this kind of Luis Castillo changeup. It's not kind of like the Strasburg one, which is the two seams. He look kind of uses the seam shifted wake to really dominate the movement of the pitch. It's kind of like the screwball sort of action that makes it tumble. So I think the changeup is probably far and away his best pitch. But hmm. there was a point kind of earlier on in the season when he started getting used more often where you could sit on the changeup or the fastball right as a two-pitch guy, and he got kind of hit around a bit. So then he really worked on the slider. And so that's when he became just like a full-fledged force. And it was a much-needed one for the Red Sox bullpen that really doesn't have anyone. Sure. And the yeah, I mean, they were basically relying on Barnes, Ottavino, and that was it. And Barnes and Ottavino had 
catastrophic, you know, second halves to their season. Yeah, Yeah, I'm looking at this here. Uh, Sinker, changeup, slider, four-seamer. Four-seamer is when he throws least, but still about 10% of the time. So he's got, you know, three to four pitches that he can use at any given time. That changeup, you're right, it was his best pitch. Uh, 185 batting average against is uh, pretty all right with a 31% uh, whiff percentage there. Solid for a changeup. That's real good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it looks so good out of his hand. And also he's got this funky thing with his arm where it kind of goes completely inverted, almost nearly like in, inside of like his behind his hip sort of. And it must be incredibly hard to pick it up. It's a smooth action as well, so it just kind of like pops out of the hand. I thank you, Brian Cashman, the Yankees. Yep, that's like that's one of the best gifts I think you could ever get. Much give. appreciated. <laughs> yeah, no, the best part about it was so it, um, the Yankees decided to protect Brooks Krisky over Whitlock. I think that's the story, and Krisky had. A weird moment at Fenway um, came in for like the 10th inning. It was a tie game. The Chad Green already blown the save. And they have the runner at second base. And Krisky like throws four wild pitches in the score. <laughs> yeah, and the guy scores um, on a sacrifice fly. Like Wow. So, yeah. Krisky ended up being like a member of the Orioles like a week or two later. Oh, no. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, you know, great gift over there for Boston to have Whitlock, and hopefully he's a big part of the team going forward. That's awesome. I love it. Um, so getting back to just more about Jai here, uh, tell me about your kind of fantasy baseball career. How many leagues do you play in? What's your favorite type, etc.? Yeah, so I play... I played in three leagues this year, which is the most I've played. Um, so one was the staff head-to-head kind of categories. How'd you do? Um, I finished fourth. Okay. So it's not – yeah, it's pretty good. I won last year when I did the categories. This is my first time ever doing it, which was pretty cool. Um, yeah, I so in kind of that league – I I basically all over Sean Manaya every time like a draft comes around. So I draft. This has been for like two three years now. I'm like, you know, awesome. the breakout is coming. Like this guy's got this really funky, awesome uh, wind up and release, and you know, 90 still works. And once like it started pumping out at like you know 93, 94, 95, I'm like, all right, this is it. You know. It's here. Ace, you know, <laughs> Ace might get to a World Series here. I, I, as, you know, that's completely over the top. But, um, yeah, so. This year, though. He looked great. Yeah, so I guess the benefit of living in the Bay Area is, you know, I get to watch all the Ace games with local TV. And so every time Manaya pitches, sometimes it'll be even be during a Red Sox game. I'll just turn it on. I'll be watching. And for like three, four innings, I have no idea what the heck happened in the Red Sox game. That's awesome. But yeah, so I had Manaya. Um, the pitch, yeah, so my pitching kind of fell apart. I, well, actually, my first five picks were overall were Mookie, um, Bauer, Oof. Robert, Rendon, Oof. 
sorry, Rendon before Robert, and then mm. Mondesi. Oh boy! So yeah, <laughs> a good pick in Mookie and four kind of yeah. awful ones that just. I think didn't the thing with out. Mookie, yeah, the thing with Mookie is like he missed a good chunk of the year and he wasn't quite himself. So it really took. I got Austin Riley in the middle, so that really helped me help me out. Uh, I got JD kind of late. Well, not late, but kind of like I the seventh, eighth round, whatever the lowest you'll get him. Yeah. So that was nice. Um, yeah, but for the most part, that's what really carried my team. Just I need to work on actually hitting on the stuff I fixed the next time. I uh, uh, I, I went with uh, Cody Bellinger and Trevor Story in my home points league. Uh, that did not go well. <laughs> so I very much understand your your pain there. Uh, which points did you do, by the way? Because like, is it Yahoo points? Because ESPN does we, the negative for the strikeout. We have our own like slightly customized where we um, it's pretty standard points, except we don't subtract for strikeouts. Okay, so you uh, there's all the quality you start and everything. Actually, it's hitters only. Hitters only. Okay. Interesting. It's a hitters only weekly points league. It is the most laid back fantasy baseball league you've ever seen, and it's kind of awesome. Nice. So, I my home league, we've been tinkering with the ESPN setup. So, we used to have, you know, um, wins and losses. Then we switched to quality starts and losses because, like, we felt, I, I don't know why we did that, but. You know, that's there. Um, and so the pitchers were just way ahead of the hitters, especially with the minus one for the strikeout. It meant like Mike Trout is he like the best hitter, you know, for a number of years. Uh, he was like maybe like the 10th, 11th, 12th best player, oh. which is like, yeah, insane. So what we did was we took away quality starts. We took away losses. We took away all the extra stuff generally for pitchers. If you do a sh- pitch a shutout or a no hitter, you'll get extra points. But um, we also have holds and saves so that you know someone like Josh Hader would be more valued as a pitcher. And what we we ended up having you know hitters and pitchers more evenly mixed. Now someone like um, Trout or I I think Vlad was um, the second best player this year i think in my league by the points okay and so but surrounded by a couple pitchers so he's a lot more evenly matched and so yeah we tinkered enough where the points actually work because a lot of the time i did the other points thing i did was with the pl plus um and pl staff we kind of mixed it up and so that was a 12 team league and with yahoo um there are no strikeouts and so pitchers are kind of way undervalued. I, I'm, they just don't perform that well. I think someone like – so I think this was last year, but Garrett Cole got like 300 points left, fewer than the top hitters. So he'd ranked as like kind of the 25th best hitter, 30th best hitter. And Cole was easy. Yeah, so it's a big drop. So something – yeah, so – wasn't really the best kind of mathematical representation of baseball. Sure. I, yeah. I guess just with 
fantasy leagues in general, you want something that resembles kind of real baseball value. Like you're getting, you're creating a team that could go out there and kind of win rather than, right? Then just having like the, I just took all the best hitters. Yeah. And then my pitchers were just random, you know. I, I yeah. ended up with Cole by accident because I didn't know the point setup. And then once I looked it up, I'm like, oh, well, that was dumb. And I went like 11 hitters in a row or something. It's crazy. And, you know, got more pitchers at the end manaya was one of them obviously of <laughs> but uh yeah i won that one uh which was nice. fun yeah but uh winning's always fun but when, i mean i have gone on record before saying that my favorite part of fantasy baseball and the fantasy baseball community is winning <laughs> like I, I think uh, two years ago, I think it was now for the uh, PitchCon uh, roundtable. I jo- I was joined by Dave Sherman and a few other managers, and we went around, and everyone was like, "What's your favorite part about fantasy baseball?" And people were talking about like learning about players that I never would have taken um, the time of day for if I was just watching the Yankees or whatever. Other people were like, I love the community and how uplifting people can be uh, working with one another. And they got to me at the end. And I was like, I really like beating my friends. I really like <laughs> thinking that I'm smarter than them. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Which I'm, I'm, no, by no means the best analyst at pitcher list. Not even close. <laughs> like, you might be up there, but I am not even close. <laughs> so. There's some great people at pitcher list. I, I wouldn't put myself in that top tier, but I love winning. And, you know, I'll get, I'll spend the time to, you know, analyze players before the draft yeah. and, you know, go into the nitty gritty of, like, the settings for the league and just, see what the math is that's the one thing i think about fantasy baseball it's that you need to learn it's like the most important thing rather than looking to see who the sleepers are or whatever is just seeing how the league works exactly what do you need which things so that's in a points league that's a lot easier than i think with categories you just want a little bit of everything sometimes you can if you want a sure thing in a category, then I, you, you can just punt on one and write stolen bases. You could probably just punt and you'll be fine. And just, you know, really focus on um, kind of home runs, the counting stats. That would be mm-hmm. one way of doing it, I, yeah. I guess, from my own experience. Um, I punted saves this past year in the Pitcherless Legacy League. Um, worked out really well for me overall. I uh, according to the like ranking system that we had set up, the automated ranking system with the whole staff, my team was one of the top 10, but I also somehow missed the playoffs. So I'm pretty sure I was had the unluckiest team out of the like 80-some in our staff leagues. Yeah, that, yeah I think I ranked kind of low teens a little bit. But I, I had... I basically so I drafted Trevor Rosenthal. Um, I had one more closer in there. Forgot I'm drawing a blank. But my last closer was Jake McGee, and so right before kind of opening day, Rosenthal is like out for 
um, forever with, uh, oh shoot. I forgot what the injury was, but it, uh, I think it's a thing like Matt Harvey had. Oh, thoracic. Yeah. Thoracic outlet syndrome. That's it. Mm -hmm. Um, so he was going to be out for a while. So I just ended up with McGee. And so my only saves for the entire year came from Jake McGee. So I love, I love seeing like the, you know, the, uh, the spreadsheet and the saves and it'd be like 32 and it's in like dark red, which means it's one of the fewest. Let me see. I've got it pulled up now. Let's see which of us, uh, had fewer saves. Oh man. I had 39. You had exactly 32. Good call. <laughs> yeah. So it, it was all Jake McGee. There's no other person. That's fantastic. That <laughs> yeah. You ended up uh, the 21st best team out of 86. I oh, had yeah. the 14th. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm in the same league as Rick Graham and John Metzelar who have now been in the championship uh, matchup for the Legacy League three years in a row. Those two, three years in a row, which is stupid. Wow. That's impressive as hell, and I'm really (laughs) frustrated that I keep having to play against them year after year in, like, the league that I focus on the most. It's really frustrating. (laughs) That's dominant. That is dominant. truly impressive. Gotta love it. <laughs> what kind of th- things are you really proud of that you worked on here at PitcherList, whether it be articles, projects, or anything along those lines? Yeah, so earlier this year, um, I wrote about Jesus Lizardo. This was, I think, just before he ended up getting sent down to AAA or maybe a little after. But, you know, when you watch him pitch, it's like every pitch – you know, sinker, four-seamer, curve, change-up, they all look great. He just looks really good. He can locate them as well. And, you know, yeah, you know, his ERA this year was 6.61. And his FIP and expected ERA were both well over five. And at while I was writing it, you know, his stuff plus, which is something, um, you know, Saris tracks, I think with some help of driveline, uh, was at 100. So that means it was just perfectly average. Hmm. And so kind of made me wonder, like, what's going wrong here? And so I went looking through it. And so, you know, his kind of fastballs got crushed, curveball was okay, you know. It was a little kind of, I guess, suspect. Because generally, if you get one good breaking ball, you can have kind of your fastballs play off it and yeah. be okay. I think a lot of it was just because at the time, he was only throwing his curveball like closer to 30% of the time, maybe a little over. And so there were a couple starts towards the end with, with the Marlins where he did kind of well. It was like just 40%. But the problem is the fastballs still were really bad. And, you know, you can't throw your curveball 100% of the time. So so what I went through is there was a piece on Fangraphs from Michael Augustine um, in 2019 when Luzardo first came up. And so he cited a study um, that was presented at Sabre um, that was, uh, you know, looking at pitch subtypes. It had a few, 
I think it was a machine learning based thing, but it created based on velocity and movement, you know, these pitch subtypes. So there'll be like sinker one, sinker two, sinker three, there'd be four seamer one, two, one, two. And there were, I think 30 of them overall. And so one of the, I guess, best comp. So first of all, they had combinations of pitches that would, you know, create, you know, the best ground ball rates for one pitcher, you know, for the pitcher overall. So certain arsenal sort of thing. Right. So a combination of pitches would create, you know, also better swinging strike rate overall. And so one of them was kind of a sinker three, curveball three, um, you know, which is something that Luzardo was pretty close with. And so back in 2019, Luzardo's curveball matched that curveball three classification perfectly. But um, with the, it was just an in-short but vertical movement with the sinker three. So he wasn't quite getting the ideal pairing. And um, now, you know, he changed the spin axis a little bit at the time of when I was writing it. And so he added an extra, la- like an extra inch of lift um, while keeping the same arm side run. And so he got that sinker three classification. But the thing is, Luzardo's curveball. So generally, curveballs have kind of a little bit of top spin that creates the downward movement, which is different to a slider, which is basically that perfect gyro spin that would cause. It uses gravity as a downward force exclusively rather than using the spin. And so what happens is that, um, you know, Luzardo now has that gyro spin kind of curveball. So he's not getting that downward movement anymore, which means it's not a curveball three. Once Mm -hmm. again, that perfect pairing kind of eludes him. And so... You know, the swinging strike rate I don't think was that great this year. Um, When I wrote it, it was 12.8%, which, I mean, the more elite pitchers are kind of creeping up towards 16 17 18% for starters. And so, right, if he can get that pairing, then, um, you know, he'll become a better pitcher. And he can locate all his pitches, which is a good thing. I mean, a lot of guys have good stuff, but they don't know where it's going. And so with him, you know, getting those pitches right. So that was one because I learned a lot about, you know, the, first of all, these classifications, like the study was really cool to look at. Um, I watched it as well. Um, and so just kind of looking through that was really cool. And so the other one. Before yeah, you go. move on here, um, what are your thoughts on Lazardo now that he's in Miami? Uh, I know that. Miami has had a lot of luck with their starting pitching uh, over the past few years. Uh, Mel Stoudemire, their pitching coach over there, works with a lot of guys who have kind of power stuff, whether it be um, Sandy Alcantara, things like, people like that. So with the success that they have had, do you think they can help uh, Lazardo kind of find – his correct uh you know mix get him back to a very productive player because he's obviously still got tons of potential i'm just interested to see if he can put it together i mean he's only how old is he now he's gonna be 25 next year he's still very young super young um so 
I've got pulled up Brooks baseball here, and so not a lot changed from when I was writing in terms of kind of pitch uh, movement metrics. Um, still kind of roughly zero inches of mute kind of vertical movement on the slider. I Brooks calls it a slider, but he calls it a curve, and so mm. on baseball savant it's a curve. But so and while the fastballs have kind of just stayed the same uh, for the most part, um, so not much has changed there. I feel like either the fastball, well. Either the fastball needs even more kind of vertical. You need to create the separation so that you're kind of swinging between the pitch above and the pitch below. I guess with the respective fastball and curveball. Sure. Um, so, Luzardo, I, I think the first thing which um, I think Nick Pollock uh, kind of looked over, like on his Twitter, um, that you know Luzardo had. And all, all the game notes he has for starting pitchers, those are a really great resource uh, for those that don't already know. Um, but yeah. have, yeah. So having, so Lazardo kind of was working towards kind of the forty percent threshold for his curveball, which is huge because it's easily his best pitch. It was his best swing and miss pitch. I don't know the exact numbers now, but um, you know, first of all, based. You know, getting that out there, throwing your most best stuff as often as you can is critical for pitchers in general. And um, it's just getting the other pitches to kind of work around that. So as of now, I don't expect anything different from next year um, than what happened this year, just because I haven't seen any changes. But if he does kind of maybe add some downward movement, to this kind of slurve curveball and you know gets that kind of ideal pairing i think he could really take off or you know try and get more kind of vertical movement on the fastball but some pitch movement thing has to change yeah for that you know for his potential to be realized for sure i agree and i'm I'm hopeful uh, with the new coaching, new uh, environment there that he'll be able to kind of get a different voice in his ear, get different advice as to how he can make that happen. And uh, I, he's always been a guy that's been super interesting to me and I'd love to see him succeed. And so seeing his career essentially postponed due to injury and then having him come back and be just bad is been it's been sad to watch because this is a guy I'd like to see succeed. So I'm I'm hoping that Miami is a good place for him. Uh, although the uh, the the Braves fan in me is uh, less excited about a potentially very good Lazardo because man that Miami pitching staff is already super good. Yeah, I mean I think that trade I think it worked out for Oakland and so I basically what it was is you know the Marlins ate all the money for Marte and so that made the A's give up uh Lizardo yeah. in classic A's fashion the Marlins had to eat money I don't, I don't think that's ever happened before but <laughs> yeah, that's about right <laughs> but uh yeah I mean Lizardo has a good amount of work that he's gonna have to put in to 
I, it's, I mean, by good amount of work, I mean, you know, sometimes it's with pitches, it's kind of cheap, like for a curveball to add more kind of top spin, it's changing your wrist position very slightly to just make sure your fingers go over the top of the ball. And so it's really kind of minor fixes like that that make it all work. But they're still kind of major when you're looking at the numbers. So hopefully he figures it out because he's a lot of fun to watch just when you're looking at all the pitches. Yeah. His last start of the year on October 2nd against Philadelphia, five and a third innings pitched, uh, six hits, one earned run, 11 strikeouts. That's pretty darn good. Yep. Hopefully it's a sign of things to come. Pretty darn good. So – Outside uh, of that article, uh, do you have any others that you were wanting to highlight? Yeah, so one was on uh, David Price, who, uh, you know, as a Red Sox fan in the beginning, there were a bit of growing pains. Because um, uh, I guess in 14, after he got blown up by Boston, the 13 ALDS. His first start, you know, he hits, you know, David Ortiz, and then he hits, my, you know, Mike Carp, and so it just came off as sort of, you know, I guess there there are other words to say, it, but it just, it just didn't look good, and and so when he came to Boston, like, how's this gonna work? And then in sixteen, he wasn't really good in the bullpen. Seventeen, he was out of, I mean, sixteen didn't work. Seventeen, he was out of the bullpen, and so eighteen. You know, it's that game five start against Houston in the LCS where he figures it out. And so what he does, he gets Christian Vasquez behind the plate. There were some, I guess, positive things in kind of the earlier start against Houston in game two, but didn't go that long. Um, it was So basically what he did was he started throwing pounding fastballs in to – you know, four seamers sinkers to right-handed hitters. And so it allowed him to move kind of the change up away. So you're basically when you're throwing that pitch inside all the time, the hitter can't, you know, kind of step, you know, get closer to the plate, kind of step out and try and, you know, hit the ball away, which price is really good at with the, with the cutter, with the change up. And so I took an at bat, um, against George Springer early in that game where he's throwing these fastballs in, he's making Springer move his feet, and then he strikes him out on this changeup away. And so I took kind of his whole, you know, career, like just how many fastballs he's thrown inside. And, you know, with right-handed batters, you know, that's the most important for him, I guess, as a left-handed pitcher. And so the seasons where he had the greatest kind of change-up swing strike rate, you know, um, 17, 18, he was throwing, you know, a lot of his fastballs inside. And so it was nice to see kind of that correlation between the two. Because I guess from a baseball thing, right, it's hard in, soft away. It's always been something you've been taught. And so I guess what I really like most about the piece, I've been thinking about it forever. I guess it's one of the first things I thought about. I, when you're watching baseball, you know, generally I wasn't looking for 
those things it's more like whoa that was a really cool play wow that was the guy hit it that far but to really get into the nitty-gritty of you know what pitch sets up what every pitch should tell a story about what you know should be happening later in that bat later in the game or maybe like two weeks from now when they face each other again so that was something that you know was really cool to write about that's awesome yeah it's uh i mean for the regular season especially i think a lot of the like you said nitty-gritty kind of individual pitch stuff can get kind of lost in the weeds because we play 162 games for each team and there's hundreds of thousands of outs and pitches and it's hard to you know pick out interesting tidbits from the noise but whenever you can find something like that it's always a good time to really dig in and be like oh wow yeah that oh shoot that is cool and no time is easier to do so than in the playoffs when every pitch seems to matter that much more yeah definitely i i mean earlier like the series before against the yankees like you know he pitched maybe just barely into the second inning and one of the pitches he gave up a home run to gary sanchez too early on was this cutter like it was i want to say like you know maybe a couple inches off down and away it's not a ball that should be ending up you know kind of going for a home run but if you kind of go through the piece or look at the gif i'm going to go with that pronunciation <laughs> i like it that's that yeah. is i would argue that's the correct pronunciation <laughs> so uh yeah he gets sanchez kind of leans out there like he's expecting and so it's again for pitchers it's having a diversity not only in your repertoire but also kind of location that's how you can make pitchers seem different just you know working in and out up and down that's also something that you know pitchers should emphasize and i think they do yeah i agree uh i want to give a quick shout out to roster resource i just went and jumped on the dodgers uh, page there and they have already got uh the off season like 2022 projected lineups and things like that in for teams other than the astros and braves that's that usually doesn't happen from my experience until, you know, a few weeks after the World Series. So well done, Roster Resource, on the ball. As of now, they do have Price in the rotation with uh, L.A. next year. So I, I'd like to see Price get back to starting. I think he's still going to be able to be a productive member of that rotation if they are able to, you know, keep him in a spot there i mean this is currently assuming that kershaw does not return which seems unlikely i think kershaw back to the dodgers is the most likely outcome for him this offseason yeah i can't imagine the dodgers would let him go it i mean i think if you're kershaw you're probably not going to be asking for that 30 million a year and I feel like that's a little kind of far-fetched. They'll come to a happy medium where yeah. he comes back. I agree. Um, 
on the, on a kind of related note there, uh, tell me uh, why Freddie Freeman is going to re-sign with the Atlanta Braves. You know, again, I think, you know, I, for years with Ortiz, like he didn't take the most amount of money. I think the most he made kind of in a season was like maybe 16, 17, something like that. I mean, he was, he was a DH, but he meant so much to the city. He could have made more. Um, I think with Freeman, you know, he was there through the lean years, I guess kind of what was it, 16, 17, 18? Yeah, kind of 15 yeah. through 18. Yeah. Okay, yeah. So, you know, they chose to build around him. I think it helps a little bit that the Braves have, um, you know, Acuna and Albies locked up for a good amount of time and not crazy expensive deals that they probably deserve. could yeah. have. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so, I mean, I, you can't imagine the Braves and Freeman, like, not together. That'd just be criminal. It would be truly heartbreaking. Yeah, I, I can't imagine, especially with a World Series berth now, possibly a title. There's, I can't imagine. Yeah. It, yeah. It, I mean, I, I am terrified that something is going to fall through and Freddie will end up with like the angels or something. Um, but I am just trying to keep put off a quiet hopefulness that we, everything will be fine. It, it will go how it should go and it will be fine. Yeah. I think as long as the Braves kind of, you know, have a respectful offer and like kind of process to the whole thing, I think Freeman is like he wants to come back. That, I mean, the joy on his face when he like you know he t- caught the final out. Yeah. There's still a way you could. I mean, he you can see the emotional investment that he has with the franchise. It would, it, it would really suck. I mean, personally, like just with the Red Sox, like they offered. John Lester in early 14 when he pitched the team to like a World Series win the year before had so much to do with the even in 2007 he pitched the game for the clinching game after coming off um, lymphoma the year before I think which is crazy crazy yep yeah and they offered him four years and 70 million in spring training it's just the ultimate lowball offer and everyone was like why would you do that like you know piss them off and so they get to you know they trade him at the deadline for Cespedes but then even in the off season they offered him six years and 120 which is like a more respectable deal because he went to the Cubs for like I think six years and 150 it's not yeah so it's not like too much more but if he they offered the six years and 120 in the spring, he would have taken it. Then, mm-hmm. no. So it's one of those things. And then obviously with Mookie, that kind of breaks my heart every time. You know, yeah. just letting him go. I mean, he was he was such a good person. I remember, like, you know, the World Series, there was a story that came out. After game one, he had, there was extra food, I think. And he went kind of to homeless people around Boston. And gave them food just in the middle of the night. There are no pictures, nothing. I, 
I think there was one that was just taken, but didn't do it for the publicity, nothing, just like in the goodness of his heart, which. That's so cool. It's, it's heartwarming. That's awesome. So, yeah. It sucks to have him, you know, play for the Dodgers. Yeah. Just because I selfishly want him back. <laughs> and also, it's the Dodgers, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, man. Well. We are going to take a quick break, and we will be right back after a word from our sponsor. Hey, Alex Fast here, and thanks for listening to this podcast on the Pitcher List Podcast Network. If you're a fan, consider supporting all of us by getting a PL Plus subscription, where you're going to get an ad-free website and get access to our Discord, where you can talk to all of our podcast hosts and staff. Plus, you can hang out with our incredible Pitcher List community. It's basically a baseball sanctuary year-round for as low as $8 a month. You can sign up at PitcherList.com backslash plus, and you're going to get your first month free with promo code podcast also don't forget to check out everything else we do as well from youtube videos live streams newsletters off-season articles tiktoks breakdowns over 15 baseball podcasts on our network we can't stop talking about baseball even during the off-season so sign up for pl plus today at pitcherlist.com backslash plus and use promo code podcast to get your first month free all right thanks for listening let's get back to the show and we're back. So, before we get, you know, too into things, I know we talked about it a little bit, but my Braves are in the World Series for the first time since 1999. Last time the Braves won a World Series title, I was three months old, and my soon-to-be 22-year-old brother wasn't born. So, yeah, it's um, it's a lot. I am excited. I am anxious. And uh, I guess, I, I, uh, Jai, what are your what are your thoughts on the series to come? Yeah, so I, we were talking about earlier, Morton and Free, that it's going to be really important um, that the starters give, you know, Atlanta's offense a chance to like get ahead, get some momentum um, early in games, so that there's less pressure at the back end. Maybe if someone like Luke Jackson you know falters so you know having them shut them down I, boston was in even the games they lost in the end kind of games four game five really game six too the starters were pretty good um they only gave up a run or so for the most part and kind of pitched to into the fifth inning into the sixth inning and so that's a template that the braves should look to you know copy um, I guess, um, again, I just want to give, you know, a shout out to kind of Adam Duvall. I wrote about him earlier in the year as someone as like a premium trade candidate. He flies under the radar, which, you know, so premium would, you know, is, uh, I guess a grand term that sense, but, you know, he's got a lot of power drove in an NL high 113 runs this year and, he tied with Devers for fourth overall, and uh, Vlad Jr. finished um, at 111, so just tells you how good he was there. Dang. And also defensively in the outfield, he was a plus defender at all outfield spots. It's why the Braves have you know been able to put Duval out in center. You know, it's he's helped made them. some good plays out there. Uh, he had one catch up against the wall 
that might have gone out. It was very close. It was right at the top of the wall, and he uh, made a great play on that one. I think it was a Chris Taylor shot out to. I think uh, it was Gavin Lux. Gavin. Lux. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. It was Lux. Yeah, the second ball Lux hit in that direction. Thought it was out and did not go out. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know. He's got a lot of those kind of Hunter Renfro traits, you know, except I guess Renfro really worked on the average this year. Well, DeVault doesn't quite have that. Sure. But, you know, I guess going into free agency or whatever, you know, he's someone I absolutely would love to have on my team if I was a GM. But, yeah. uh, you know, hopefully he has a big series, makes himself even more money. Um, but I think yeah. one thing uh, that I'm – interested in seeing the Astros have made fantastic contact throughout throughout the season and even more so in the uh, playoffs they've been striking out very little putting the ball in play and making teams have to make a play and I think an interesting uh, storyline is going to be the Astros hitters uh, great contact skill versus the Braves infielders stellar defense I mean some of the plays that the Braves have made against Milwaukee and then uh, Los Angeles have just been wild the I mean even just the final out of the uh, game six Dansby Swanson with kind of a spinning lunge uh, to his right to make a great play it's going to be interesting to see if the awesome defense of the Braves is able to kind of keep up and keep their pitchers in the game yeah no the defense is definitely going to be important you can't give the Astros extra outs absolutely um they will kill you um you know that Chris Sale game you know um Schwarber doesn't catch the ball at first base and on a Brantley ball. And if he catches it, Sale likely gets three outs before kind of Alvarez shows up, if I remember mm-hmm. correctly. And so those runs don't score, and they're still kind of down, just one nothing with a shot of coming back. So not giving those extra outs are critical. Just making sure, you know, fundamentally sound. You don't give extra bases, don't give extra outs. Something I wrote about, you know, um, as I've been, co- I was covering the Red Sox for our playoff article series. So that was something I highlighted every time was just defense matters. You can't do, you got to play fundamental baseball at this level. And I think that's something Snicker has brought, you know, to the Braves and something they do really well throughout from what I've watched. Not too yeah. many games, but, you know. Ron Washington uh, does uh, infield drills with all the infielders before every game. Uh, It's it's a very old school uh, staff, coaching staff there. And like I said, the fundamentals may be their biggest strength. One thing that I'm interested to see, I'm going to be honest, the pitching for the Astros doesn't scare me which is a weird thing to say after they've had amazing pitching staffs for the past few years running. I mean, tonight is from Bravaldez. 
He's coming in on the season with a 314 ERA, 125 whip, 125 strikeouts, and 134 and two-thirds innings. That's good, but it's that's your game one starter? Where's where's Garrett Cole? Where's Justin Verlander? Um, Lance McCullers. He yeah. Had a good year. So it's... I, I'm. That's the thing I think might be the difference is, like I said, the one-two punch of uh, Morton and Freed. If the Braves can take one or both of these first two games in Houston, uh, that could be very tough on the Astros uh, as they, you know, I mean, Urquidy, Garcia, Grinky is going to be solid. There's just not that one guy that you can look to to really put the team on his back and go out there for seven strong innings, I don't think. Yeah, so I thought something similar, which is why I picked the Red Sox to win in six games. Just none of that scared me. And, you know, it it looked the case through the first three games. You know, Valdez was bad. Garcia couldn't even make it out of the second inning. Um, and so what happened in the later games was Valdez started throwing strikes and that power sinker just generated a ton of balls just beaten into the ground. And he pitched eight innings against the Red Sox, only gave up the one run at Fenway in a pitbull game, which was great. But then there was Luis Garcia who magically started pumping out 97 mile an hour fastballs i think his average was 94 six through the year oh my it was after some knee issues apparently you know it was something with his i guess drive leg he had his heel on the rubber but his you know toes off and so he was causing him knee pain um once he straightened that out you know he was getting square on his back leg and really letting it fly the cutter which kind of looks like it should be a slider i guess but because that's what it looks like but on 13 swings he got 12 whiffs yeah and that boston lineup i don't think i've seen anything you know through the playoffs up till kind of game four it was the most dominant kind of offensive performance i've seen from a team I think ever. It was just yeah. putting the ball in play, walking. Kike Hernandez was just phenomenal. He was just hitting every ball to the moon on base all the time. It was just a gauntlet, and the Astros found a way to just halt it. And so I think also with the Braves, they have like a 28% strikeout rate this yep. postseason. Um, and so what they'll need to do and Houston is at 22%. So there's quite a big difference there, but what the Braves will need to do is put the ball in play. Don't, you know, swing and miss like give, put the ball in play, make sure, you know, the fielders, you know, put under some type of pressure. You never know what might happen when the ball's in play. Yeah. So, my That's only thing I would push back on as I'm going to forever defend my Bravos, um, the Braves going up against uh, the the Brewers had to face the likes of Woodruff and Burns, and, and there was a lot of strikeouts from those guys just because they are 
big power strikeout pitchers. I think I think our strikeouts came down quite a bit against the Dodgers, if I'm not mistaken. I might be. Who's to say? But on the uh, pitching end for Atlanta, um, past Morton and Freed, it gets pretty shaky. We got Ian Anderson that'll almost guarantee to throw game three. And who knows what will happen for game four. Uh, maybe a bullpen game featuring Drew Smiley. Uh, Kyle Wright was just added to the uh, World Series roster. He's been a guy who they've tried to get in the starting rotation in the past. Has not too much success recently. But they might look to the two of them in game four to really give them a few outs and get them further into the ball game. Yeah, I I mean, just through kind of the ALCS, Houston looked a lot more comfortable against left-handed pitching. I think most just because, you know, their star players are right-handed. You know, yeah. Altuve, Bregman, Correa, Guriel in the seventh spot. So, and also, you know, Brantley, Alvarez, and Tucker, they're totally comfortable hitting against lefties so i kyle wright like i think might be a big he'll need to contribute i think quite a bit just because you know he might you know i don't know his exact numbers like through this year but he has a starting experience not good yeah it's not great but you know he might need to offer like three four innings and like kind of like a bullpen game or something give some sort of length you want to make sure you know, the relievers, especially Matzik, you know, um, Smith, Minter, they don't get worn out in the early games and they can't offer anything late. You want to make sure you're, you know, managing them correctly. Don't want any dead arm or stuff like that. Um, For sure. Yeah. Uh, Matzik, or sorry, not Matzik, but uh, Kyle Wright this year spent most of the year in AAA, 137 innings pitched with 137 strikeouts, 302 ERA. So AAA was solid. Um, when he did pitch in the majors this year, he only had two games in which he had a 995 ERA. So it's been not great for right when he's been at the major league level. He's never really been able to put it together in the bigs. He's had success at AAA, so at this point he's looking more and more like he might be that kind of quad A style player, but um, the Braves are going to need something out of him if they're going to win the series. I definitely think because uh, Atlanta leans so heavily on their left-handed relievers, and like you mentioned, the Astros are very comfortable against lefties. It's the Braves are definitely going into this as the underdog. Um, if Matzik, Minter, and Will Smith aren't able to be as lights out as they were against the Dodgers, then we may run into some issues pretty quickly. So I'm just curious for right. How are his walk numbers kind of through the year? I know he's had struggled with them. I think last year wasn't great either when he was starting. Um, in AAA this year, 8% walk rate for a 118 whip at AAA. So, okay. Solid. So, yeah, solid. Um, yeah, I, I think what Houston did, but the Boston lineup, it, they were walking quite a bit. Weren't they started pounding the zone, and they're like, 
our infield defense is phenomenal. Our outfield defense is pretty good. You know, put it in play. We're going to be fine. You know, baseball, like at the end of the day, 300, three out of 10 hits, right? Yeah. You're going you're gonna to be really good, but that's still seven outs in between. So it's just challenging the guys constantly. And so I think that's what, you know, Atlanta is going to have to do with this Houston lineup is don't be afraid of, you know, trust Swanson, Albies, Freeman, Riley behind you. Trust Duvall out there in the outfield, you know. Make sure you're not giving up walks to lead off the inning. Obviously, you're just kind of walks in general. Make them earn it because, again, it's kind of like with the fielding thing. You just don't want to give extra runners, extra bases to this Astros team. They will punish Absolutely. you. Yeah. The last thing I will say in defense of my Bravos, they, uh, their one through nine lineup is deep. Uh, there are no slouches at any point. You do not get any kind of rest as a pitcher going through that lineup. Soler, Freeman, Albies at the top, Riley, Eddie Rosario, Duvall in the middle, and then Darno, Peterson, and Swanson. That's the lineup tonight. So when your number nine hitter hit 27 home runs this year, that's pretty all right. Yeah, no, I, I think the Braves in the, in the American League like ballpark, they certainly have the bats because they right, redid their outfield. They've yeah. got the extra kind of Peterson, and so you can slot him in at the DH spot or whoever's playing DH time. Soler is DH tonight out of the uh, – and uh, – going lead off for us once again a very strange kind of un uh unusual lead off type hitter at like i think six 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 five but good on base as down the line for us he was our consistent lead off guy as throughout september so and if you look at the astros lineup tonight you got altuve brantley bregman really scary Alvarez, Correa, Tucker, maybe scared, more scared of them, honestly. I really don't want to pitch to Alvarez or Tucker at any given time. <laughs> and But then their their last three are, like, Guriel's very good. But Chaz McCormick and Martin Maldonado? Yeah, those are definitely... scared of them. Yeah, the, the, those were definitely weak spots. You know, Boston was perfectly okay intentionally walking Guriel in kind of key spots. Yeah. And pitching to McCormick and Maldonado. Um, but mean, the one, yeah, no, go ahead. Maldonado's almost like a second pitcher spot. Once you get to the NL parks, he's not had a good year at the plate. And neither really is Jason Castro as the other option. Yeah, I think he got the one hit in game six. Um, and it was, I think it was kind of late in the game too. So he was like one for 13, one for 14, just never looked good at the plate. Um, what I will so, say, though, about the Houston lineup is I feel like that kind of Alvarez, Correa, Tucker part of the lineup is a lot more dangerous to me than the front three. And so yeah. if you're Atlanta, you can shut down those top three. I know Boston in those first three games, they controlled them really well, weren't really getting on base, weren't really working the pitch count either, just not doing well in general. It made it a lot easier on them to kind of get through and give up minimal runs. So that's 
going to be another point of emphasis for them. I think the Braves are a good enough team. They've shown enough where they can really work this series and, you know, possibly win it. I just, I mean, maybe it's just kind of recency bias with me just because my team lost, but Houston looked really good in those back-end games. Yeah, for sure. It's, like I said, I think... If it, I think Atlanta is definitely coming in as the underdog. I think Houston is very reasonably the favorite to win it, and but I think it's going to be a very good series on our way to whatever conclusion we may find. Yeah, I mean Atlanta's just had. I mean, when Acuna went down, no, I don't think any, a soul thought they were going to make it this far. Let alone, oh, I even, was, even winning the I division. I was telling my dad that once Acuna went down, I, I said, "All right, let's trade Charlie Morton. Let's trade whoever else we can. Let's pack it up and plan for next year." But uh, Braves had other plans, and here we are. It's been kind of a magical second half, truly. Yeah, um, Zaidi in San Francisco and Anthopolis in Atlanta. Those two favorites for Executive of the Year. Yeah. For sure. They just both did phenomenal jobs. So this next portion, uh, you want to talk about, uh, and I'm just going to read straight up here, airing some grievances (laughs) slash notice of a trend. (laughs) Yeah, so these are just kind of collections of ideas. And so the first one was kind of using pictures on short rest. Mm. You know, I've... It's kind of been a hot topic because, you know, Roberts uses Scherzer after 110 pitches in game three, you know, a couple days later, right? Get game four off, day off, and then game five, use him in a tight, you know, ninth inning up one to send your team, you know, to the next round. And so after that, Scherzer wasn't really quite the same um, in game two. He got, you know, he hands the ball to Roberts off the mound. Like, I guess the time before, you know, when Roberts went to take out Scherzer, he just shook his hand. So you knew something was really wrong this time around when he just yeah. hands the ball willingly. And Mad so Max never really gives the ball away. Yeah. He'll shout at his manager to yeah. stay in the game. Yeah. So that was really troublesome. And, uh, you know, even Arias, like, you know, he's had experience. I, I think last year, is, you know, he was pitching in relief. He pitched the last, I think, three, four innings of the World Series and won it for the, the Dodgers. Um, but, you know, this year he pitched a career high, 185 innings. Um, I don't think he ever got over like 110 in a given year at the, I guess, in his career. It might just be the major league level, though. Um, but you know, that probably hurt him as well. Um, there was a piece at MLB that, you know, Mike Petriello wrote talking about how pitchers, um, you know, starting after a relief appearance, like three or fewer days after that relief appearance, they generally kept the same results, but, you know, obviously shorter outings. I'm just I think this is where roster building will change in the future because what Cora did, right? So having 
Whitlock, who could go multiple innings. Garrett Richards was on the roster, like in the DS. He could offer two, three innings. Unfortunately, he got hurt. He wasn't really allowed to, you know, kind of manifest itself. And, you know, Tanner Howe can go three, four innings. And then you've got your four kind of starters on top of that. It's having the depth, six, seven, eight starters, so that, you know, not only are the pitchers not overworking themselves through the year, but you can have all these matchups and other things that just, you know, makes it a lot easier for everyone to perform at their best level rather than pitching on fatigue. Yeah. What's interesting is throughout the playoff run, despite Atlanta kind of having a lack of quality starting pitching, but behind Morton, Freed, Anderson, they really haven't done a ton of pitching on short rest. And that might be why their guys have been able to stay more consistent. Uh, I think worst we've done is ask Morton and Freed to do four days rest. Um, But more than once now, Atlanta has thrown out a proper bullpen game where you ask, you know, six, seven, eight guys to give you outs throughout the evening. Um, even I think it was game three or four against the against LA. We had um, a bullpen game where Drew Smiley came in, got nine outs as like the hero of the game. Um, we were hoping for maybe six so that was amazing so it's interesting yeah and watching scherzer in that uh game against atlanta he really just was not himself like the he i've seen a lot of max scherzer as he's been his years in uh washington and facing the bravos and things like that and he's he's a guy that absolutely attacks the zone and he really wasn't doing that and the his ALCS start then beyond that he was unable to make the uh game five start which was I think just or I guess the game six start then it which I think was the dagger for LA you have to ask Bueller to come in on three days rest and do something wasn't able to keep up with Eddie Rosario gave hit a three-run blast so it's definitely it's interesting because we, we've seen L.A. in particular with um, Dodgeritis, so, so many starters available to them at any given time. Yet Dave Roberts goes to his same guys over and over again and pitching them to the point of exhaustion. I mean... I think the quote from Scherzer was, my arm is toasted. So, which is, I'm going to be honest, I don't think I've ever experienced that, but that doesn't sound like a good time. Yeah, no, I I mean, I think during spring training, it's, they're fairly, you know, common instances of like dead arm where, you know, a pitcher is building up and just isn't quite there. So they'll have to sit out for, I don't know, two, three weeks might not be ready for the season. So even if the Dodgers had miraculously found a way back into that series, won it, I don't think you'd see Scherzer for the World Series anyway. So, I mean, it it, it just wasn't the smartest move, I think, on Robert's part. It's, yeah. Because, right, you've only got the three starters. You can't really mix them. I think 
what Cora did is he used the roster appropriately. You know, he could do that because he only had to use the right Pavetta in game four only went 65 pitches while going twice through the order, ended up going like four and two thirds of giving up the one run. And so you could have brought Pavetta back in a potential game seven, something like that, with not the same amount of stress as someone like Scherzer, which is 110, something like that. Or even Urias, that, you know, it. He had a similar pitch count to kind of what they were doing with Evaldi around 80 pitches and kind of bringing him, you know, on their normal throw day, using them that way. But again, the 185 innings, you, that's a, easily a career high. You I don't, think Urias was also brought in in game two for an inning. Um, yeah. Which yeah. was an interesting thing. Uh, game, brought in in game two for an inning and then asked to start game three, which was a decision. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I it's weird, honestly. Like, I, I I don't know what Robert's thought process was. I mean, it's interesting, but yeah, it we'll seemed like at, at, at certain points, Dave Roberts was almost out managing himself. Yeah, no, for sure. I we'll see how la's off season goes um they'll probably need to build a lot more depth a lot of it's getting kershaw healthy but they'll i mean again what boston's doing what the giants have done kind of which is kind of the notice of the trend and part of their statement but uh sure yeah what the giants have like first of all they built just a lot of depth in the right alex wood di scofani you know guys that could kind of come in um you know they had i think zach littell one of the relievers go two three innings at one point i think in a game four i think game four maybe of against the dodgers um so just again you need guys that can go two three innings so that's i think something a change in the sport that'll need to you need to have kind of two three firemen guys that can go deep you know just cover some length and it, it'll be good through the year because especially you know of the max effort sort of era we're in pitching wise it'd be really good to not overextend guys through the year you could piggyback more often it's something temp, you know tampa bay has shown success with so that's one thing i think the giants have done really well but it's also just, you know, it's kind of an interesting sort of thing I noticed. But, uh, you know, MLB Network has a show, MLB Now. And so they're mm-hmm. kind of looking at the Giants. And they were talking to Ron Wotus, the bench coach, who I think retired at the end of this year. Longtime Giants coach, I think 30, 40 years maybe. Um, but one, you know, they have so many coaches. They've got three, four hitting coaches. They've got like three pitching coaches. Just a lot of coaches in general. Like, you know, I guess, you know, kind of in the classroom, right, for schools, you know, the s- smaller the ratio is teacher to student, the more highly regarded they are in general. Sure. You know, that's in college. Just because the teacher can fo- spend just that extra bit of time 
on that individual student in this case on this individual player and i think that's where maybe something like kind of this assembly line lineup might actually stick just because they can spend that little extra time preparing them throughout the game for particular pitches uh, pitchers um and just stuff like that so i think i think the giants have done things this year that a lot of teams will copy just from that. You know, you don't need to spend 30, 40 million on a couple guys, create this top end heavy roster when you want to build something, not just 26 men deep, but really, you know, if anyone would get hurt, really your whole 40 man roster, your whole organization has good players and you can substitute one for the other. If anything bad will happen, it's, I mean, 162 game season, bad things are going to happen. Yeah. So, you need to build that depth. So, I mean, I think that's something in the playoffs. We'll, we've seen that the Giants like will have an influence on the future rosters of baseball. I agree. Yeah. I. I, uh, I can't remember where I had heard this, but. Some along the lines of if every man on the team is average, no one's great, no one's bad. If everyone is average, that's going to be an amazing team. Because there's just so many places you can go, so much you can do to replace someone if they go down or need time off, things along those lines. And I really kind of think that's where... uh, where San Francisco went not to not to call every player they had average they had some amazing breakouts this year um but yeah I think depth has been really shown off in the last few years because I think the Dodgers especially in 2020 and 2019 showed off some amazing depth from both the pitching and hitting sides um and I mean, injuries marred their playoff run significantly, but they were still one of the deeper teams left in the LCS portion. I think with what we've seen the the Giants achieve, not only putting together debatably the best team in baseball this year, but a team that is also and here's where the owners are gonna love this cost effective i think you might see a lot more uh two one to two year contracts of like five to ten million for guys let's get more role players in here things along those lines yeah um that i i think also again with those role players i think it's hard to sometimes um, just come off the bench and just hit, you know, I generally kind of teams just put guys kind of in that spot and doesn't really work out that great. I know like, right. Jock Peterson's kind of used to it. He's a, been a platoon guy for a long time. So he succeeds. Um, now with the giants, you know, Darren Ruff, he looks really comfortable in that southpaw yeah. hitting only role. Lamont Wade looked really good. And so I think that's where, you know, again, the coaching and every and the communication from 
Gabe Kapler probably telling. I know Alex Cora does this um, with uh, pitchers and like relievers and um, you know their bench guys. You know, telling them a couple innings in advance. Hey, I'm thinking about this spot here for you to come in. You know, be ready. Um, so again, need the coaches and the the infrastructure on that end, which I think we start we'll start to see more from clubs, just to keep players at ease and take the pressure off them a little bit. Yeah, I think the uh, the type of guy that's able to play all the outfield spots, the type of guy that's able to uh, move around the infield, is those kind of super utility folks are gonna be even more valuable um as we see this kind of trend kick up um and who knows we we might even see more popularization of the true um platoon Uh, the giants made a fair bit of platoons throughout the season in route to 107 wins was it yeah so i think that's something that you know if you if you are able to have two players that are willing to work with that and cool with that i think that's the hardest sell is both guys are going to want more playing time for arbitration or for their free agent uh, negotiations and things along those lines but if you can find a solid platoon it's pretty great yeah I, i think you know also going i know the cubs hired um an executive who worked for the dodgers and the astros i forgot his name is like a son um bokari um he i think mastered and he'll be the cubs assistant gm and so he got a master's in statistics but his phd was in some like quantitative psychology and so it's a bit of using kind of statistics and like for trials and stuff to kind of i guess look at um sort of trends just how human behavior generically but you know i think that's something that's also really important is knowing how kind of people work maybe you know the different traits and other things just personality wise or you know just in general how they tick that could help you like you know just evaluate what roles they'd best be suited for and if you're putting in your players like you know the best positions to succeed they very likely will succeed it, for sure so yeah that's another it's thing. crazy to me that the same guy who seemed to be bumbling around uh how to make sure you have a reliever warmed up in Philadelphia is going to win manager of the year this year. Because in his first stint in Philly, he was almost a lapping stock and made very strange decisions a lot of times. And I mean, it's hard to argue with the results that we've seen in San Francisco this year. Uh, Kapler has just been among the best if not the best yeah i don't i don't think he made a kind of wrong step 
the whole year. Yeah. It, I mean, kudos to him because, I mean, I didn't watch too many Phillies games. I know, like, opening day, he took out um, Aaron Nola kind of after, like, what, 48, you know, 58 pitches, something like that. Something like that. Some weird stuff, and, like, he was doing really well. I mean, obviously, like, the idea of not going 110 pitches on opening day is kind of common past few years. Um, but, you know... 48, uh, I mean, 50, 60 pitches is a little over the top. And so he's grown, I think, a bit since then. But also, it might just be the roster fits him a lot better. Just because, be. I mean, outside of Webb and Gosman, maybe you don't want like a Discofani or Wood going that deep into an outing. So you can bring someone else that can go, you know, a respectable amount of pitches or whatever. Maybe go two, three innings. Maybe yeah. one guy goes and one. He's had a great bullpen to work with there. Yeah, McGee and Rogers were instrumental to their bullpen success for sure. Yeah, I uh, I'm excited to see what's to come for the Giants. They've got some money to spend this off season. I think they're going to pick up one of the big six um, shortstops coming up, so that could be fun. We uh, Carlos Correa, Corey Seager, Javi Baez. Marcus Semien, Trevor Story, and Endleton Simmons are all free agents. Every one of them. My prediction is Semien is the one that they will end up with in San Francisco. Personally, you know, Crawford had such a good year this year. I mean, really, he's changed his sort of stance at the place opened up hands a little lower looks a lot more fluid this year um he had you know 351 x wobra which is like pretty good and he still has the elite defensive skills um he was in the 99th percentile for outs but of average he was a really good player this year and you know lifelong giant Grew up a Giants fan in the Bay Area. It's kind of one of those things when you're looking kind of at Freeman or Kershaw or something where I can't imagine the Giants let him go. Um, But I think, you know, the thing with the Giants, I don't know if they even spend the money to kind of keep Chris Bryant around. Like, I, I feel like his name is bigger than the production value. He... He's a pretty good hitter, but he's not like, you know, when you think of Chris Bryant, wow, like MVP, like back in the day, you know, just like a stud. I don't think he's quite there. And I know it kind of defensively, he struggled quite a bit at third base. Um, maybe they use him in the outfield spot. The Giants do have a lot of money, but I don't know if they're going to spend it, you know, that much. I think they have had success doing what they're doing just by you know developing at the major league level these guys crawford belt posey making them good yeah but we'll see i mean i think uh i think you bring back crawford keep him at shortstop but bring in someone like semian and put him at second base yeah that that extend that lineup yeah no definitely i i mean simians are are I think a plus defender at second base and really hit. The one thing I'll say is they gave Tommy LaStella a three-year deal 
um, Cup, you know, I think last year. They've still got Solano. I mean, obviously, Simeon's an upgrade kind of over both. But, again, we'll see. I mean, the roster's just so – it's got a lot of depth. I don't know where exactly they'll go spend the money. It'll, it'll, it'll be interesting. Be, yeah, very interesting offseason. I think they will spend some money after – after the success they had this year, get some more guys in. And I think they want one star, someone maybe from those shortstops. Maybe they do bring back Brian if they really liked him sort of thing. Uh, or maybe they bring in a big pitcher, something along those lines. So bring, or at least, at least bring someone like Gosman back. I could see them signing uh, Robbie Ray. That sounds like an interesting matchup for me. So, I, th- I think the Giants are going to spend some money in the upcoming offseason. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think just with the Giants, one thing to consider is Marco Luciano, their top prospect. Mm, He's mm-hmm. a shortstop, looks like an absolute stud. It's a uh, good call. So maybe they kind of stick with Crawford for two, three more years till he's ready. I don't know if they go with a, maybe a top line, but the Robbie Ray run I think is interesting. It's always good to have a guy that you know can pitch elite innings but do it you know for 200 innings yeah that that's yeah. always super valuable and there's a ton of money out here in silicon valley so <laughs> for sure good stuff man good stuff now i think that about covers most of what we had planned to talk about is that right yeah that that, that was most of it i guess there, there's something kind of like what's signals i you know the, with the whole astro sign stealing stuff i just feel personally like having kind of the catcher you know pointing down signs you know making it super complicated and everything yet it can still be picked up you know just by a team having the center field camera yeah i'd much rather have like the nfl they have um the quarterback have the headset and the helmet obviously pitchers don't wear helmets Maybe they should just to prevent, you know, bad injuries. I know Chris Bassett had one this year. Yeah. Um, but, you know, right, the catcher, I mean, the pitcher could have his, you know, hand, his glove in front of his face. And, you know, he'll say a sign, hey, I want fastball down and away. Catcher would shake yes. Catcher, no. And then pitcher, the pitcher would say another sign or whatever. Or, you know, maybe sounds an issue, gets loud in stadiums, I don't know. But you could have, you know, I think I, I read somewhere online, I forgot who it was, so maybe some someone who's listening, it was their idea. But uh, it was having Apple Watches with like this app where you could um, point for, I mean, you could click what pitch you wanted and then you could That's pitch interesting. this. But this, um, the location there as well, so pitch and catch for both of you wearing one. But I feel like, you know, right, we live in the 21st century. We don't need to use 19th century, you know, tech <laughs> communication anymore. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I mean, it's all uh, rather interesting. I was actually explaining to my wife, you know, the Astros sign-stealing scandal and – she she was she has no interest in baseball but she was fairly interested and kind of fascinated by the whole thing of just wait so they just 
show the the sign like with their fingers and i'm like yeah that's kind of just how that's always worked she's like huh i didn't even realize that's how they decided that and that seems like it'd be really easy to steal i'm like you're not wrong yeah so yeah i, I definitely agree that you know it's at least worth a uh worth a discussion of kind of evolving yeah no i i mean at the end of the day you know maybe the astros are the only team that did it but you know on that scale but you know there's been many times where like right players are relay um signs to the hitter from second base Mm -hmm. just from looking at signs and stuff and so they're changing it obviously right the signs could be so complicated that the pitcher throws the wrong pitch and really hurts the catcher the umpire that it's a safety issue at that point yeah so i think making it simpler while decreasing the cheating that seems like a pretty solid you know answer to that problem for so sure yeah hopefully it's something i work on in the future it seems like that sounds like something that would be, you know, experimented with in the minor leagues and <laughs> eventually make its way up sort of thing. Because they're always testing new rules down there. So we'll see. I, th I think it's definitely interesting, you know, concept and discussion so that we could. Uh, I, I don't I don't even think it's unreasonable that we could see that in the next 10 years, you know. But at this point, we're going to go ahead and transition into our mailbag questions would you like to uh, reserve a large portion of the podcast for your questions and we want to answer them on the air so if you have questions for my guests and i you can tweet them directly to me at brastowski or better yet join our pl plus discord server our questions tonight do come from the server so uh one of our pl plus supporters little piranha uh, wants to know from Jai, what can the sport of baseball learn from the sport of cricket? So question that I am, I have no idea what you're <laughs> even about to say because I know nothing about cricket. <laughs> so in cricket, right? Instead of, so in baseball, you, you, you will show up to bat at least one, uh, and at least one other time, you know, in every game, right? Generally most players have three or four at bats in cricket, you've got the one innings generally. If you play the five-day game, the test match, there are two innings, so you'll generally get two at-bats. But right once you get out, you're out. That's it. And so in cricket, like players learn how to hit the ball hard but avoid fielders. And so baseball, there's a shift, obviously, you know, Players have found it difficult to hit it away from the shift, just hit gaps in general, hit it where they ain't, right? Um, so, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite batsmen in cricket was Brian Lara. He was from Trinidad and Tobago. And he grew up, um, you know, practicing hitting balls. He set pots and just, you know, put around as fielders substitute as fielders around the ground and he'd hit the ball and he tried to avoid the pots and so that was his way of hitting gaps and maximizing the amount of runs he's going to get and so baseball i mean you know i saw verdugo throughout 
um, you know, the postseason run, hitting balls through the shift, you know, opposite field, taking the easy single. I think that's something baseball, I mean, these guys are more than talented and able to be able to do that type of stuff. If they're giving you a free base, take it, you know, don't, you, a 500 on base looks pretty good. That's, I mean, you'll get paid with a 500 on base or yeah. 600 on base. Absolutely. So, yeah, the, that's the main thing I think cricket could really teach baseball players. Just bat control, you know, maximizing the batted ball that you're actually putting in play. For sure. Yeah, I know my dad, that was always one of his big things. He played... Uh, uh, competitive softball for a long time and he was a big doubles guy he would whenever he was practicing he would put a five gallon bucket out in um out in left field he was a left-handed batter and he would do his best to hit the ball into the bucket he was shooting it the other way um just aiming for the bucket move it around a little little further towards the line, a little closer to center sort of thing, and try to really maximize his back control because he was never a guy that was super jacked. He wasn't going to be hitting the ball out of the park every time, but he, so he wanted to make sure that he would at least be able to get a single or a double, putting, it, putting the ball into the outfield grass. So obviously it's a little harder in baseball to control where you're putting the ball uh, than it is you know slow pitch softball but um i definitely think that's something that hitters are gonna have to start doing because i don't think the shift is going anywhere unless like the new cba says you're not allowed to have more than two men on one side of second base which i don't think is likely i don't think the shift is going anywhere for many years to come yeah and I, I mean just you know you should be able to put fielders where you want for the most yeah. part yeah i don't think that's against the spirit of the game or anything like that um you should be right if it's giving you the best chance to win you can yeah. do it within reason obviously atlanta has done a really interesting shift where um they'll have some guys over on one on the uh, right side of the infield for the start of the at bat, and then once the batter gets to two strikes, Austin Riley, the third baseman, will come over and also play on the right side of the infield, and they will just give the entire left side to the batter. And it's worked out a couple times where they've hit it to Austin Riley, who's playing like shallow right field. Yeah, I, again, just giving yourself the best chance to succeed. There's, I don't know, I, it, right? It, if a hitter had a hard time against a curveball, like it'd be like saying, you know, hey, you know, you can't throw this guy curveballs anymore, just because it's like, a, you know, it's they're not getting hits or whatever. It seems really... I've, I've never gotten that argument of trying to ban yeah, the Yeah, it's kind of silly. Yeah, for sure. Well, our next question here is from the man who I believe is your manager, uh, Scott Chu. 
Jai wrote 28 articles this year, 16 of which were going deep. Can, Jai, can you think of one or two things you learned while researching all of those pieces that surprised you or made you change your focus for an article? Yeah, um, yeah, we made some, I guess, changes. So Shelly Strat is now my um, manager. Scott was my manager for my first couple of years. He was like the nicest guy and everything. So Correct. always going to be gra- grateful to him for, you know, always being there to give me advice and stuff. Um, so generally when I'm writing, like when I say I'm going to write about someone, I, you know, it's because I give, you know, I've spent a lot of time beforehand mentally mapping it out and everything. So they generally aren't surprises that way. But one I wrote earlier this year was on um, Tyler Anderson when he was doing really well with Pittsburgh. Um, And so he was attacking the zone. It seemed a lot kind of like that Rick Porcello kind of – I guess just in general, but that Cy Young year weren't a lot of swing and miss pitches, but he had like a good changeup that got around 18% swinging strikes. I think it was a money pitch. Um, It's like 40% plus O swing and 40% zone rate with the swinging strike rate over 15%. And um, also the cutter, it had, you know, a 45 minute deviation from you know, out of the hand spin to at the plate spin. So it was good seam shifted wake and, you know, it was near the top of the leaderboard. And generally that um, on fan graphs, Nicholas Gow um, wrote about it, about how cutters with greater seam shifted wake um, produced lower run values per 100 pitch than, you know, the lower amount ones. And so with those stuff, you know, with the those pitches – He's attacking the zone. You know, he's not walking too many guys. Um, I thought, hey, Tyler Anderson, you know, it's going to be like, he's going to be this really good pitcher. But what I found, everything in the heart of the plate. So when you get to two strikes, you generally don't want to be throwing it in the heart of the plate. You're going to be giving up more contact and other things. So it's just, I mean, what I ended up learning was, probably was not going to end well if he didn't change that you you wouldn't be able to hunt for a strikeout with two strikes you know if you can get a guy out on a strikeout then you know there's no risk of an error happening or you know the ball squeaking through a hole or infield gap outfield gap whatever so that's that's one of the main things kind of i guess when i was writing something I'd go and, um, you know, my outlook on a player just drastically changed on one, you know, just writing it generally. That's interesting. Yeah. Generally, I'm like pretty straightforward on the whole thing. Sure. Yeah. A lot of times you go in with the general idea of, you know, this guy is doing interesting things. Let's see if what's behind that and why these things are happening. Uh, do they back up the performance or should we expect regression again? And a lot of times, you know, because you've got a good idea of what might be happening, you go in and you realize, oh, it is happening. 
great. This backs up my theory. Or, oh, it's not happening. Guess it might not be that. Is there something else? And uh, uh, every once in a while, you'll be go in and find, like, ooh, um, this isn't as good as I thought it was going to be. And for me, I think it's a... Uh, I think it's the mark of a good writer to be able to pivot and still, you know, produce an interesting piece that has something to say that wasn't what they were planning. Yeah. I I think one of the things um, that I do while writing is when I'm looking for players, some player might pique my interest. I try to not have any sort of, you know, kind of bias. I just go, I kind of exhaust all avenues first. And so you're just collecting a whole bunch of qualitative, quantitative data so that you're able to make kind of of a real sort of, you know, I guess piece around it. I tried not to put out opinions per se, just because I'm, my goal is to collect data that may be someone else that's playing in a fantasy league or just trying, just interested in the player in general. They want to have a better idea so that they can make their own opinions based off, but don't have the time to look at everything that's ever been posted about the player or whatever. Sure. So, yeah, that's my job, which is quite a lot of fun. Well, you are very good at it, and I'm glad you enjoy it. And Thank you. it has been an absolute pleasure having you on, getting to know you. Um, as I continue going through on the list, I'm getting to interview more and more people that I have not really had personal relationships with prior to having them on as a guest. And Jai is another case here where you and I, you know, we've worked together a couple times on projects, but we haven't really, you know, chatted got no one another so this was this was nice i really enjoyed it yeah no it's i mean everyone that works for picture list is so nice and you know nick does a great job of you know promoting a great environment just with the people he hires and we all like get along knowledgeable nice it's it's great to get to know more people on this side and you're one of them so thanks for having me on Sure. I'd say the one glaring exception to the everyone is nice rule. Uh, Alex Fast is just the worst, but otherwise, <laughs> great people. <laughs> well, Jai, thank you so much for coming on. For Jai Correa and myself, Austin Bristow, this has been On The List.